0: morning. So we will be covering Ezra, Nehemiah, and then First and Second Chronicles. Hopefully this has been a enjoyable equipping hour for you guys. Um, initially we were trying to do it, you know, like an academy class which we kind of had with OT1, and so I kind of adapted a little bit and changed some of the notes around a little bit. But hopefully it's been informative, and hopefully you've learned more about the Old Testament and um, hopefully we'll try and summarize some things this morning. I'll try and leave some time for questions if you guys have any. You guys need to give me an extra measure of grace this morning. I had a, I'm not 100%, I'm feeling quite better, but um, some type of sickness thing. On, it's, well, it's going through Bakersfield, I feel, so I feel pretty good yesterday and today, but still not 100%, so if you have questions, don't come up and talk to me afterwards. Just keep your distance. Just text me or something like that. I don't know. So, Ezra and Nehemiah, let me pray, and then we'll, we'll wrap up the Old Testament. Lord, thank you so much for your grace. Lord, it is new every morning, and we need it every morning. Lord, I just pray as we look at the end of the Old Testament that we would see the glories of our God and Savior um, as it points to the necessity of, Of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, to come into the world to save sinners. Um, I just pray that you would bless this time. Be with us, give us the strength and the ability to learn uh, for these next 45 minutes or so. Bless this time. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so Ezra and Nehemiah. um, Actually, originally in um, the Tanakh, which is the Hebrew Old Testament, basically. how the the Jews would put the Old Testament together. Ezra and Nehemiah would be one book. They put the two together. And so they're not actually meant to be, I would argue, not meant to be read as kind of separate. Um, There's a good chance that they're actually both written by the same person. We don't know. Um, But Ezra and Nehemiah, I think it's good if we read them together. Um, And what I'm going to do, technically Ezra and Nehemiah actually do conclude the storyline of the Old Testament. Like if you're just going chronologically, they are the very last thing. Um, but I think it's significant that the, the Jews in their Hebrew Old Testament, they go Ezra, Nehemiah, and then Chronicles. And hopefully I'll explain a little bit why I think that's significant and what they're trying to get at there. Um, you know, why did they put Chronicles after Ezra and Nehemiah? So we'll, we'll find that out. Just big picture, Ezra um, is dealing more specifically kind of with the rebuilding of the temple. And then Nehemiah is more focused on the walls and the city in particular. And so this is, you know, kind of post-exile. The the people are going back um, to Jerusalem. And you kind of see this right off the bat. So what I have up there is um, Ezra 1.1 and 2 Chronicles 36.22. And if you look, it's the exact same words. It's the exact same language. And so Ezra picks up exactly where Chronicles ends. Uh, This decree of Cyrus, which we see prophesied in um, Isaiah 45 and also in Jeremiah, you see this here, now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to complete the word of Yahweh by the mouth of Jeremiah, Yahweh stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia so that he had a proclamation passed throughout his kingdom and also put it in writing saying, thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he's appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem which is in Judah, whoever there is among you of all his people, may Yahweh his God be with him and let him go up. And so he sends us to dec- decree. Remember, Israel's in exile, right? They've been taken into captivity because of their sin, right? And we realize that that goes back to, um, you know, the, the promise of blessing and curse laid out in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. If you obey God, he's going to bless you. Um, ultimately, if you disobey, he's going to take you in exile, and that's exactly what happens. But there's hope on the other side of exile, and so How Ezra and Nehemiah start, there's actually a lot of hope. Like, oh man, hey, maybe this is finally the return from exile. Maybe this is when God is going to bring about all these glorious promises that we've been reading about through the prophets, and we'll spend some time in that. Um, Ezra and Nehemiah, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but the way they end clearly indicate that that's not the case. Um, In fact, the Old Testament ends on a very sour note. Uh, The Old Testament, I would argue, demands a New Testament. And so, um, you see this Ezra 1 begins on the exact same note that Chronicles ends on. Ezra himself, he doesn't actually show up in the book until Ezra chapter 7, okay? Um, So, as a character, you know, as a person, he doesn't show up until Ezra 7. And this is probably about, I think it's around like 90 years later. So, 1 to 6, he's recounting a lot of history. He's saying, here's what happened, here's what happened, here's what happened. And then he leaps forward about 90 years later. Um, to where he is and when he finally shows up. And so you move from about 538 B.C. um, to around, I think it's 458 B.C. is when he shows up in Ezra chapter 7. And like I said, you know, date, um, you know, he's covering a lot of events. The author, we don't know, probably Ezra um, or maybe Nehemiah. Setting, I already mentioned this, but kind of this return from exile and kind of this purpose is, is this the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel? Is this it? Is this the culmination of everything? We've been waiting for. You see that in 1.1. This is clearly providential. Yahweh stirred up you know, the king of uh, Persia, Cyrus. Then you see. And, and kind of the, the... I'm arguing that the author is wanting us to think, is this the return from exile? Is this the... You know, we've been talking about the second exodus. Is this the fulfillment of God's promises for Israel? This is Ezra 1.6. And you can kind of follow the highlighting here. He talks about... Um, um, when Israel is being brought back to the land, all those around them strengthen them with articles of silver, with gold, with possessions, with cattle, and with precious things. So those are the, the, the pagan nations are giving to Israel all these valuable things. Well, if you go, if you remember Exodus, this is Exodus 12, 35 to 36. I'll just read this. The people of Israel had also done as, Mo, as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold, jewelry, and for clothing. The Lord had given the people favor, thus they plundered the Egyptians. And so it seems that what Ezra, or the author of the book, is trying to indicate is that, hey, this is very similar to the first exodus, the first return from exile. And so maybe we're meant to see this as something else. Then you have, you know, the purple highlight here. Also, King Cyrus brought out the articles of the house of Yahweh, which Nebuchadnezzar had brought out from Jerusalem. Well, this is Jeremiah 25. i it down here. Jeremiah 27. Um, This is, again, a prophecy. This is, you know, before the exile. And Jeremiah is saying, hey, the vessels that are left in the house, they're going to be carried to Babylon and remain there until the day when I visit them, declares the Lord. Then I will bring them back and restore them to this place. Well, Ezra is saying, hey, that's now. And so it seems that Ezra is cluing us in to already think, hey, is this the return from exile? This might be the second exodus. Um, but if you remember, like, remember Sky Monster Principle? Talked a lot about Sky Monster. This, this clearly isn't the whole enchilada, Right. We're still missing some significant portions by the time we get to the end. And so that's the intro. You're going to have this rebuilding decreed. I'm going to try and stick more to my notes. Um, Point one, rebuilding decreed. You jump down to chapter 2, verse 64. You see the whole assembly together was 42,360. So the amount of people that return is 42,360. Now just think, is that a lot of people? Like, well, kind of. I mean, it kind of depends. Is that a lot for, like, a nation? No. Like, Bakersfield is like, what, ten times that big? Or maybe not 10. I mean, it's huge. It's way bigger than that, right? It's not that big. It's certainly not like the stars of heaven or like the sand on the seashore, right? Which the Abrahamic promise said, your descendants will be like this. It's obviously not like that because you can count it, because you can number it. And so this return... Is anything but, oh, okay, yeah, this is not that big of a deal, actually. No, the whole nation does not return. I think the author's already cluing us in that this isn't the end. Then you have in chapter 3, this is verse 10, the builders, they lay the foundation of the temple. And you've got this great ceremony, you know, and everyone's, like, oh, man, hey, the temple, the, the temple signifies, you know, God's relationship with his people. When there's no temple, it's not good. When there is a temple, you know, things are good. Oh, man, hey, the temple's laid. This is great. In verse 12, yet many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' households, the old men who had seen the first house, going back to Solomon's temple, right, were weeping with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes. See, those who had seen Solomon's temple saw the new one, and they're like, man, this isn't even as great as Solomon's temple. And we know that the new temple that's coming is going to be even greater than that one. This one's nothing compared to even Solomon's. So this is clearly not you know, Ezekiel's temple, like we see in Ezekiel 40 to 48. This is not the fulfillment of God's promises. You just kind of see Ezra kind of sets us up, and then just kind of let down, and then let down, and then let down. And sometimes people don't know what to do with Ezra and Nehemiah, you know, and it's like, man, this is kind of weird that the Old Testament ends on a sour note. And then sometimes what they'll do is just take, you know, moral, okay, we need to be like Ezra, or oh, we need to be like Nehemiah. I think we need to let the text speak on its own terms and let us know, hey, the Old Testament actually ends on a sad note. This, this is not happy. This is actually quite sad for God's people. You have Ezra 4.4 4, moving along here. This is, like I said, he kind of moves through like 90 years of history really fast. Again, Ezra, it's kind of like Daniel and that it's not exactly chronological. It'd be easy if they did that, but they don't. <laughs> um, but he moves from Cyrus then to Darius, uh, king of Persia. Then uh, the reign of Ahasuerus, also known as Xerxes. So that's the guy we see in Esther, right? So that's where Esther, you kind of have to understand, like, Esther is tucked within the context of Ezra and Nehemiah. It kind of fits in that history. And so Ezra or excuse me, Esther would be going on right there during Xerxes. And then you jump down, verse 7, in the, day, in the days of Artaxerxes. And you kind of, so like I said, Ezra is, is moving quite quickly here through history. And with this, he's trying to show panoramic statement of like the opposition, the, the struggle to rebuild the temple. You see this in Nehemiah 2. It's not easy for them to rebuild the temple or rebuild the walls, rebuild the city, that there's constant opposition from not only the nations, but also from Israel itself, um, from, from God's people. And so there's suffering, there's problems. Um, Ezra 4 and 5, you see the prophets Haggai and Zechariah appear on scene, right? And so we mentioned those guys at the end of the minor prophets, they show up, and they help, um, uh, they help the people to finally rebuild the temple. Then you jump ahead to, um, let's go to chapter, chapter 7 here. Chapter 7. Actually, I don't have a slide. So you're going to have this rebuilding decreed, rebuilding prepared. They finally rebuild the temple. But it's not just the temple that needs rebuilt. We need to rebuild the people as well. They need a right heart. And this is where you have that time jump, like I mentioned, Ezra 7. Ezra, the person, actually finally shows up. This is a really good verse to memorize. Ezra 7.10. Ezra 7.10, for Ezra had set his heart, notice the order here. He set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. I think that's just a really good, if you're just, hey, Give me just one moral principle, one thing I should do as a result of Ezra. Try and do exactly that. Like study it, then do it, and teach it. Notice it's not, hey, you know, study the word, teach it, and then do it. Right? I think that's easy for us to do, right? It's just like, hey, tell someone, hey, I learned this in the Bible, it's really hard, and you're telling everyone else what they need to do. It's like, hey, we need to do that first and foremost, right? And so Ezra is a great example for us there, Ezra 7.10. It says heart to study the law, to do the law, and then to teach the law. Um, you move on to, let me just keep going here because otherwise we're going to run out of time. Verse 27, um, Ezra says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king. I think clearly throughout Ezra and Nehemiah, this is providential. God is the one doing this, stirring up the kings uh, to bring this about. He is the one who set this on the heart of his people. Then you jump ahead to, I'm going to jump ahead to chapter 9 here, this sad ending of of Ezra. After these things had been done, the official this is uh, Ezra 9, verse 1. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. From the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites, for they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. Okay, and so you come to this end of Ezra, and you know the the temples rebuilt, and um, you know the. Genealogy, people have returned. He sends for the Levites. And it's like, okay, maybe things are actually going really well. Then you come to chapter 9, and Nehemiah does the same thing. And just in case we miss it, all is not well. <laughs> I don't know how else to say that. And, you know, the, the officials come to him, and they say, hey, some of the people and some of the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands of their abominations. And here's what's key. I don't think he's saying... Um, that Israel, actually, let me phrase this different, differently that, the, that they could not marry ethnically different people, okay? And it's, he's also not saying that different ethnic groups, different people groups, like the Perizzites and the Jebusites and the Ammonites, could not join Israel. And one of the greatest proofs for this is what? Ruth. Ruth is not Jewish, she's a Moabite, she's pagan. But she leaves her family, she leaves, the most important thing is that religion, and becomes a fearer of Yahweh, right? That's the key. I think what Ezra's pointing out here is what? They didn't leave, they're marrying people who still are worshiping their abominations. That's actually the key, okay? And they've been faithless in this. The hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost. So it's not just, you know, some of the people of Israel, actually even some of the leaders Think about this, some of the priests, people who are to lead the people in the worship of God, are married to pagans worshiping false gods. Like, like, this is a bad situation. This is horrible. This is, I read an article um, on Ezra and Nehemiah, and it was just titled, The Sad Ending of Ezra and Nehemiah. It's like, oh, that's a good title. Like, that's what it is. This is not good. They're still practicing abominations. If you notice, uh, you jump down to chapter 9, Ezra hears this. He's sad. He's, he's mourning. Verse 7, he says, From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. Nothing has changed. You know, The same problem with Israel um, is still continuing even to this day. Notice verse 9, For we are slaves. Like, they clearly have not returned to the land and fulfilled all these covenant promises that God has made throughout the prophets if they're still slaves, right? That they're still under foreign power, even after they return. And so you have chapter 10, um, you know, they, they intermarry, and so the people confess their sin, and they realize, okay, you know, this mass divorce needs to happen. I mean, like, this is like a horrible ending to, like, like this is like a bad ending to a bad romantic comedy movie, right? Like, there's mass divorce, and notice chapter 10, verse 9, all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. Like, it's like, it's pouring rain and everyone's divorcing each other and it's just, like, super sad. This is sad. Like, this is, this is not a good ending. And so, sometimes people don't know what to do with Ezra and Nehemiah with kind of these, like, chapters tacked on that are really sad. It's like, ah, I don't know what to do with this. I think that's actually kind of the point. Is that clearly... All is not well in Israel. And so you keep reading, like I already mentioned, chapter 10, verse 18. And there were found some of the sons of the priests who had married foreign women. So this is top down from the leaders of Israel all the way to just kind of the common folk. And so that's how Ezra ends. And so I think we need to ask, is that how the story of the Old Testament ends? This can't be it. This this can't be the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Okay, let's read Nehemiah. Let's see if Nehemiah gives us more hope or if he gives us a better picture. I'm going to try and move quickly through here. Nehemiah, he's coming, um, chapter 2, verse 1 says it's in the 20th year of Artaxerxes. And so this would probably be around 445 BC. Um, and so Nehemiah is probably about 12, 13 years after the events of Ezra, especially like that last you know, mass divorce. This is about 12 years later, okay? Let's see if if Nehemiah, so if if Ezra is a priest, Nehemiah is a governor. Let's see if he's the one who can fix this. Maybe he's the guy for the job. And so again, date, author, setting, purpose, I already kind of mentioned that, but returning from exile, is this the fulfillment? And another thing to note at this point, Ezra and Nehemiah, who's the king on the throne in Israel? Kind of a trick question. There is no king, right? And so if we're still waiting for, you know, the Davidic covenant, right, 2 Samuel 7, that hope of, you know, one from the seed of David who's going to crush the serpent, well, Ezra and Nehemiah, we don't even have a king. So clearly, this cannot be the end. And so Nehemiah, he's a good governor, but he isn't the king. And if you guys remember, there's another book in the Old Testament where it talks about in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes, judges, right? So Ezra and Nehemiah, it's almost as bad as like what? Days of judges, right? This is clearly not good. And so you have, um, you know, he talks about his decree. Um, I'm going to move through this quickly. Um, Artaxerxes says, hey, sends sends him back to uh, rebuild the city walls and rebuild the city. You have this kind of through chapters 2 through 6. And there's some great stuff You know, in there, we just don't have the time, but there's opposition to building the walls, and so, um, you know, Nehemiah, he's bold, he leads the people, he trusts in God's sovereignty at the same time, Um, but he is, you know, it's kind of a both-and, right? Um, We're trusting, you know, if we're talking about divine sovereignty and human responsibility, you see them both clearly on display in Nehemiah. The wall's finally finished. In chapter 7, you have Nehemiah's list of the returned exiles. Give that same number as Ezra, 42,360. And so um, the people return. Nehemiah chapter 8, this is, you know, kind of this great worship service. Where is it in here? I wanted to... Oh, no, it's chapter 9. I'll get there in a minute. Um, But chapter 8, he stands up. There's this great worship service, like I said, with all of Israel we can learn from. Chapter 9 is kind of this whole biblical theology of Israel's history, and so he traces through all of Israel's history. It's kind of a recap of the entire Old Testament. He's saying, hey, here's what happened to Moses and Abraham, and you know, at the Red Sea, um, you know, and all this that God has done. I love how he introduces this. I don't think I put it it in the slide. I did not. Um, Just look at chapter 9, verse 3. Nehemiah 9, verse 3. They stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. That's a half-day worship service. That's long. So, I just took from this, it's like, hey, if Mark goes like 15 minutes over in his sermon, don't complain. Like, we're not here half the day, right? Like, This is a long worship service, right? They're reading from the law for for a quarter, and then they're worshiping and confessing their sins for another quarter. This is a this is a long worship service, and so um, maybe I did have this up here. Sorry, I'm all over the place. I may have missed this one out. Oh, there it is. Yeah, sorry, my bad. Yeah, nine verse three, and so he continues on. Um, This is uh, chapter 9, verses 32 to 36. He's going back to earlier Old Testament passages, right? God is righteous. We have been wicked. He's the God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Um, Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly, right? It's not that God has done anything wrong. It's Israel. That's the problem. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. He echoes the same thing Ezra does. Verse 36, behold, we are slaves this day. And the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts, behold, we are slaves. So this is not happiness. This is not a good ending. Um, Just notice this in 938. Yeah. So I'll walk through this quick. In 938, they confess all their sins. And then they say, okay, hey, we're going to make a covenant. We're going to say, hey, we're not going to do these things again. And what they swear is that, hey, we're not going to marry um, you know, foreign women who are committed to their abominations. Okay? We're not going to do that. We're going to keep the Sabbath. Okay? And we're going to um, care for the temple and supply for the Levites and make sure everything's clear. Those are the three things that are mentioned. This is something I didn't notice until I was reading through it this week. Those are the three things, basically, that they're saying they're going to do. Okay? They're going to, like I said, not marry pagans care for the temple, and keep the Sabbath, okay? Now, if we know Israel's history, do you think they're going to keep their end of the covenant? No, okay? I thought this was fascinating how, how Nehemiah ends. That's what they're going to do. Um, you jump forward to chapter 13. Look over there. In chapter 12, they dedicate the wall, and again, it's kind of like Ezra. Everything sets up for, hey, this is good. Maybe this is a good thing. And then Nehemiah 13 the book goes out on a, on a total whimper, not a bang. Like, it is a sad ending, just like Ezra. And so, Ezra thir- uh, excuse me, Nehemiah 13, verse 6, he says, While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. From the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time I asked leave for the king and came to Jerusalem. So this is like 12 years more in the future. So this is another time leap, okay? And so Nehemiah, he kind of sets everything up. You know, hopefully everything's okay in Israel. And then chapter 13 is another leap forward. So he comes back to visit Israel. And here's what's going on. In the section of verse 10, he says, I've also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field, so I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? So they have not cared for the temple. They they have not supplied those working in the temple correctly, okay? Well, that was one of the things in the covenant they said they would do. Okay, so strike one. And notice how it ends, verse 14, this is a key phrase. Chapter 13, verse 14, remember me, oh my God. Okay, we're going to see that multiple times in this chapter. Nehemiah, remember me, oh my God. Verse 15, in those days I saw in Judah, people treading wine presses on the Sabbath. Uh Uh-oh strike two. That was one of the other things they mentioned in chapter 10. Hey, we're going to be faithful and not do this. Oh, they've struck out there. They've sinned. Verse 18, he says, did not your fathers act in this way? You guys should know we've done this before. We've been down this road. This is not going to end well. He goes on talking about the Sabbath. At the end of verse 22, what does he say? Remember this also in my favor. Oh my God. Second time he said that, Remember me. In verse 23, in those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Strike three, right? The other thing in the covenant that they said they wouldn't do. They've failed in all of this. And he says, verse 26, did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? He's saying, guys, the Old Testament is filled with examples of why we should not do this. We know what happens. And then notice this, verse 29 He says, remember them, oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. And then the whole book ends with this. down on the very end of verse 31, remember me, oh my God, for good. And so this end is incredibly sobering. And so Nehemiah is looking at all this sin going on in Israel. And he's saying, Lord, please remember me for the good that I've tried to do. Remember me, remember me. But he's also saying, Lord, remember them for what they have done. Remember them. And I think it's actually, you know, judgment. He's saying, you need to cleanse this people. You need to make them right in order to bring about your promises. And so, nothing has changed. You could put it this way. The covenant community, Israel, the covenant community has an addiction to covenant breaking. I think that's the story of the Old Testament. The covenant community has an addiction to covenant breaking breaking. They cannot change. They need a new heart. And so, the restoration in Ezra and Nehemiah is anything but earth-shattering. The the end of Ezra and Nehemiah is, we're back at square one. Sure, we've returned from Babylon. We've returned from Assyria, but we're still slaves. We're still in captivity. You guys see that? He talks about how we're still slaves. And so, this is where I kind of wanted to hit some recap and where we'll get to First and Second Chronicles, which is a great recap in and of itself. I wanted to think about this. When is the exile over? Right? If we're reading Ezra and Nehemiah, you know, if we take them on their own terms, if we're just reading through, these are some of these key you know, promises, some of these key um, passages that we looked at. Well, the exile is over when the people have a new heart. Okay, Jeremiah 31 clearly talks about that. Ezekiel 36, Deuteronomy 30. Do the people have a new heart at the end of Ezra and Nehemiah? They don't. When there's a new temple, Exodus, or excuse me, Ezekiel 40 to 48 clearly talks about that. Well, they have a new temple, but it's not even as good as Solomon's temple. So is there the new, we could say maybe eschatological end times temple? Has that been built? No. Okay, number three, when Israel occupies the land completely, Jeremiah 23, 31, 33, Ezekiel 37, there's numerous passages on that. Well, clearly, no, they don't even technically occupy the land at the end of Ezra and Nehemiah. They're slaves in the land. Point four, when all the nations come to worship God in Israel and there's international peace. We we'll talked about this in Isaiah 2 and Isaiah 11. That's clearly not the case. When there's a Davidic king on the throne to fulfill the Davidic covenant. Well, that's clearly not the case at the end of Ezra and Nehemiah. The exile is clearly not over. There's Some really good quotes here that I wanted to get to. Ezra Nehemiah begins with Yahweh faithfully accomplishing his word and ends with the people in full revolt against their own interpretive commitment to scriptural instruction. Basically saying it starts out good, and then it ends with them breaking the covenant that they made. The familiar habitual rebellion of Israel makes it seem like the exile and return never happened. Right? It's basically like they're still in exile. Israel is still in exile even though it has returned. Thus Chronicles, which we'll get to, concludes with urging an exiled Judah to return home and build the temple, this temple that will one day stand at the center of world geography and be located on the highest mountain, this temple that is inextricably tied to the Davidic dynasty. And we'll talk about that when we get to Chronicles real quick. Last one here. This guy, G.K. Beal, he is not um, a, he does not interpret the Bible the same way we would Um, He's a believer, but just different on on how he kind of deals with issues relating to church in Israel. He's very different from us. And I remember reading this in one of his books, and I was like, thank you. Like, it's so good. I was like, I'm going to quote this till the day I die. It's so good. Um, He says, although the promise of restoration seems to begin fulfillment and the return from Babylonian exile, the significant features of the fulfillment are delayed since, number one, Only a remnant and not the whole nation returns, and even this remnant is not faithful. Number two, the rebuilt temple does not meet the expectations of the one promised in Ezekiel 40-48 because it's smaller and likely because the divine presence is absent from it. Number three, Israel is still under foreign domination, which, which extends on into the first century. Number four, there is no new creation in which the land is renovated, nor is there a renewed Zion with a king into which the redeemed return from among the Gentiles, nor is there peace between Jew and Gentile. He's making the point very, very clear. I don't know of anyone, I'm sure there's someone out there, um, but regardless of where you stand on the, you know, how you interpret the whole Bible and terms like dispensationalism and covenant theology, I don't know of a single person that comes to the end of Ezra and Nehemiah and goes, yeah, all those promises have been fulfilled. No, we're ending on a very sour note, okay? And I think this is why the Hebrews, the Jews, put Chronicles, after Ezra Nehemiah, okay? Because Ezra and Nehemiah and, I would say, pretty much no hope, Chronicles actually gives us hope. Chronicles actually gives us hope and it brings us over into the New Testament. So turn to Chronicles. Turn to Chronicles chapter one. We're going to move quick. I'm going to argue that the ending of the Old Testament demands a New Testament. I mean, I think that's a good question, right? It's like, I mean, maybe this is, you don't have this come up, but maybe with some like, new believers, it's like, well, why do we even need a New Testament? Like, how do we know the Bible wasn't complete with the Old Testament? Well, because I would argue, especially with all those things that I just talked about, the Old Testament clearly says it's not over. Okay? It demands new revelation. It demands the fulfillment of the story. And so 1 Chronicles, look at where he begins. 1 Chronicles 1.1, Adam. Okay, like he's going back to the very, very beginning. <laughs> he's going all the way back. This is what Chronicles is doing. It's a, it's a chronicle. It's an account. Here is what has happened. And so Chronicles gives us a whole summary of the Old Testament. Here is what has unfolded and how we're pointing forward to the future. And he starts with nine chapters of genealogy. right? Like This is typically, if you've made it this far in like your Bible reading you know, through the year, it's like you just skip those nine chapters. Just like, oh my goodness, so many names. But it's actually really important because he's going through the line. And notice this in chapter 2. You know, he's talking about the genealogy of David. These are the sons of Israel, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Dan, Joseph, Benjamin, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. And then he jumps to the sons of Judah. And he traces the line of Judah first. Okay, Judah is not the firstborn. Judah is not the firstborn, but I would argue the reason why he does this is because of Genesis 49.10. Okay? If you guys don't remember that, just write that down, Genesis 49.10. It's a good reference to remember. In Genesis 49.10, it talks about through the line of Judah, the ruler's scepter will never depart. In other words, the coming king, the coming Messiah, the one who's going to crush the head of the serpent, is going to come through the line of Judah. And so the chronicler, whoever that is, again, we don't know, maybe Ezra, maybe Nehemiah, he's tracing this back, and he's going back to Genesis 49.10, and he's saying it's through the line of Judah that this Messiah is going to come. And so he moves on, he hits it again in chapter 4. Um, yeah, I'm jumping ahead. I'm going to hit through this, some summary points, and then we'll get to the end because I'm running out of time. Um, I just wanted to hit on this, differences between kings and chronicles. This is, this is a good, it's actually good for us to, to pause down here, to slow down. Sometimes, I mean, I do this. It's just like, Kings and Chronicles, like, they're kind of the same thing. Like, why do we have both books? Like, they're recording the same thing. And uh, I remember this in, in one of my classes. This is, again, from, from Abner Chow. He just slowed down and went through five differences between the two. I'll just read through these. Kings focuses more on political slash international aspects, while Chronicles focuses more on spiritual aspects or relationship within Israel, right? He's focused on specifically Israel, not the other nations. There's a big focus on the temple, right? That's kind of point number two here. Kings focuses more on the monarchy and the palace, but Chronicles focuses more on priesthood and the temple. That's key in Chronicles. Number three, Kings has both kingdoms, the northern and southern, but Chronicles focuses on almost only the southern, right? So an example of this, is, you know the prophets Elijah and Elisha? Like, they, they're pretty prominent in Kings. They're kind of important characters. Elisha never shows up in Chronicles, and Elijah just shows up as a footnote, and basically like, hey, Elijah wrote this thing once. Now, he's not trying to say, like, oh, these people didn't exist or anything like that. He's trying to make a specific point. Does that make sense? I mean, we do this all the time with, with all the biblical books, or at least we should, is go to, hey, why is this person writing this book? What's the so what? Okay? You kind of come like this with, with to the, um, or you can kind of think about this with the Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they are not recording Jesus' whole life, right? I think if you break down like John, he only accounts, it's like 18 days. It's not that much in terms of Jesus' life. And so what he's doing is he's, if you're thinking of like a bookshelf, he's looking at Jesus' life of, let's just say, 100 books. I'm just... It's just an illustration and he's taking off 10 of those books to try and prove his point that Jesus is the Christ the son of God and that so by believing in him you might have life in his name that's his purpose statement in John 20 30 31 and chronicles is doing the same thing he's trying to make a specific point that God is not done with Israel and that his plan continues on so point 4 kings has both the successes and the faults of the kings but chronicles emphasizes the successes of the kings An example of this is, so David's sin with Bathsheba is not mentioned. Um, His murder of Uriah is not mentioned. Solomon's um, sin is not mentioned. Again, he's not saying these things didn't happen, but he's trying to make a point. You could say Chronicles is all the good parts. Chronicles is like the happy book, okay? That's the one you want to read if you want to feel warm and fuzzy on the inside, right? It doesn't mention all the sad stuff. It's kind of, I was mentioning this to Natalie. We watched... um, I'm sure you guys all know this, but it's the greatest Christmas movie of all time. It's A Wonderful Life. And uh, we watched this two nights ago. We had, to, we had to split it up. She gets so into movies that, like, if anything sad happens, no matter how happy the ending is, like, if there's a sad part, it doesn't matter. The movie's horrible. She's crying, and it's just, we're, we're done. We're done with the movie. And so you guys know It's A Wonderful Life. Like, there's a lot of sad stuff that happens to George Bailey. And I'm just like, yes, but Natalie, the ending is so good. It's so good. And it's all about the importance of family. And it's so good. And you love family. Like, it's so good. Just watch it. And it's like halfway through. She's like crying. We have to pause it. I'm like, okay, we'll watch you know, the second half. And so we did. And we finished it. And it's a happy ending. And she's still like, still doesn't matter. You know, it's like, it's still so sad. And so I was like, hey, Chronicles is the book for you. Chronicles. Don't read Kings. Just read Chronicles. And so I, I joke with her, but she knows. She can make fun of my qualms, too. I've got weird stuff. But that, that's Chronicles, right? It's all the happy parts. It's like wonderful life without all the sadness. All right, point five. Kings is a reminder that God is the ultimate king, but Chronicles is a reminder that God has always engaged in a relationship with Israel. And this is kind of getting back to that temple. The temple is a sign of God's relationship with his people. And so I'm out of time, so I'm going to move real quickly here to the last page. Um, 1 uh, Chronicles, it, it mentions Saul. Saul's only in there for one chapter. Like Saul's just kind of like, hey, Saul's not a good guy. That's not happy, so we're not going to talk about him. Okay? It's really focused on David and Solomon. Those are the two key figures, David and Solomon. Um, Second Chronicles 1 to 9, the glory of the temple, point C. That's kind of this golden age of Israel under Solomon. And then point D of demise of the temple. This is kind of this downward trajectory of Israel's kings and um, so again it's not all happy but generally speaking it's more happy than than kings and so things go downhill just a couple points I wanted to make um, whoops I'll come back to that yeah uh, this, this is the bible's way of talking about providence and God's sovereignty and it's also kind of humorous this is talking about Ahab's death you guys remember Ahab good guy or bad guy not good he's not good okay this is, his, this is his death, how they describe it in Chronicles. You know, they're in battle. For as soon as the captains of the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. But a certain man drew his bow at random. And literally what the, the Hebrew is, there's is like in his innocence. It's like in his, like, uh, I don't know what I'm doing. Uh. He draws his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. Verse 34, then at sunset he died. And so it's kind of this picture of like, hey, there's this wicked king. God's going to get rid of him. And how does he do that? Kind of this dummy. I hate to say that. But this guy who's just like, just shoots an arrow. And it hits him at precisely the exact right point between the scale armor and the breastplate. And then he died. Like that's God's providence on display to get rid of Ahab. And I thought that was kind of funny. And so I wanted to talk about that. Second um, Chronicles 33 this is uh, an amazing passage. You guys remember Manasseh and Kings? Good king, bad king. Evil. He's super evil. In fact, Kings talks about how um, he had led Israel to do more evil than all the pagan nations. Okay? Second Chronicles mentions his repentance. He turns to the Lord. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore, the Lord brought them uh, brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. And when he was in distress, he entreated the f- favor of the Lord, his God, and humbled himself greatly before the, before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him. God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem, into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. And so it's just, a, it's just an amazing example of God's grace can save anyone. I mean, Manasseh, if you remember, I mean, he sacrifices his own son. I mean, he's evil. We would look at him and go, "Yeah, that guy is a sinner of all sinners, right?" But you know, I mean, Paul talks about that what, in one in First Timothy. You know, but God showed mercy to me. You know, the chief of all sinners. I, that's a glorious example that God saves sinners. He's gracious, sinful people. And then you kind of have the very end here. It's the Second Chronicles. Thirty-six, verse 14, all the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful following all the abominations of the nations. This is kind of a summary, I would argue, of the whole Testament. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers, the prophets, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place, his temple, but they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people, until there was no remedy. And so here's kind of the summary of Chronicles, and then you have the end of 2 Chronicles, which we already talked about it at the end of Ezra, but it's that decree to go back and rebuild the temple. Okay? What I would argue is that the chronicler, the author, is saying he knew that Ezra and Nehemiah wasn't the fulfillment of God's promises. And so he's still looking forward to the day when God would fulfill all those promises. There's a really good quote here. From Stephen Dempster. Read in a cano- canonical context, the command to rebuild the temple after 70 years of exile is a direct echo of Daniel 9. Remember that from a couple of weeks ago? The end of Daniel 9 talks about, hey, it's not going to be 70 years, it's actually going to be 77s. There's going to be 490 years of exile. The 70 years may be over, but the 70 weeks have just begun. That's the end of Chronicles. Clearly, the people are still in exile at the end of the Tanakh, at the end of the Old Testament, with emancipation and restoration of prospect. A long exile still awaits before the Messiah comes and restores all things. So if we go to when is exile over, these are all the same notes that, hey, we still haven't done this. I just added point six, when the 70 weeks are over is when exile is done. And so, considering the fact that, as I would argue, we're in the gap between the 69th and 70th week, is exile done? No, God's people are still in exile. And in fact, I think this is actually what makes sense of the New Testament language of how God's people are, what, exiles and strangers. You kind of start to see that, hey, this is still the case. Israel, all these promises to Israel and for God's chosen people have not been brought about, right? And so exile is over when there's a Davidic king on the throne, when all the nations come to worship God in Jerusalem, when Israel occupies the land, when there's a new temple, when all the people have a new heart and when the 70 weeks are over. And so that is how the Old Testament ends. And if you remember 1 Chronicles, how does it start with a bunch of genealogies? How does the book of Matthew start? A bunch of genealogies. Matthew's picking up and saying, hey, that promised king, that coming Messiah, he's come. Right? And so that is how the Old Testament ends. It's clearly, I think, expecting and demanding the New Testament. It needs to finish the story. And so hopefully you guys have enjoyed. I was hoping we'd have some time for questions, but if you have questions, you can talk to me. I mean, I'm, like I said, I'm getting over something, so keep your distance from me this morning. But um, text me or anything like that if you have any questions. I think what I've tried to do is, um, through this Old Testament too, is kind of do a biblical theological approach, and all that is, it's just an academic fancy way for saying the storyline of the Old Testament. Um, I think that's vital to keep in the back of your mind when you're studying the Old Testament because otherwise we can easily just fall into moral principles. Like, oh, hey, Ezra says we shouldn't do this, so we shouldn't do that, okay? Well, Jeremiah says we shouldn't do this, so we shouldn't do that. Okay? That's not the point of the Old Testament. It's just taking moral examples from the people there, okay? It's about God, okay? If you remember that from Jeremiah 9, you know, I mentioned this week one, but not the mighty person, you know, boasts in his might or the intelligent person in his mind, all this stuff, but the one who boasts, boast in this, that he knows me, okay? That's the point of the Old Testament, that we would know God, okay? And so doing this, keeping the storyline in your mind helps you do that. How does this display God? How does it show his glory, okay? And so that's what we've been trying to do um, If you want more, read Dominion and Dynasty, okay? Who's read Dominion and Dynasty? Emma's read it? Okay. Keep reading Dominion and Dynasty. If you need help, you know, okay, here's the other thing. It's not just like for guys. Like, ladies, read books. Like, I, I was reading this book, and I was like, okay, there's some tough parts in it. But you guys can read and understand the book. Get together with Emma. You read it. You love the book, right? Emma loves it. There you go. Yeah. Peggy, did you read it? Yeah, okay. Ladies, read the book. It's great. It's not just for guys. I mean, hey, I've, man, we are all commanded, men and women, to know the Bible, okay? It's not just for, you know, pastors and stuff like that. So, if you need more, Dominion and Dynasty, I cannot recommend that book more highly. It's it's excellent. So, all right, you're dismissed. I've already gone too long, so hopefully you enjoyed Old Testament 2.